we're, we're beginning a new series this morning in the book of Mark. Uh, so if you have a Bible, uh, turn there to, to Mark. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and somebody in the back can grab you one of our blue Bibles. Um, somebody can grab a couple of those. Jen's got them. Uh, turn to the Gospel of Mark. We're starting a series called It's All About Jesus. And uh, not only... Not only is this series all about Jesus, but essentially this series is trying to answer the question of why everything we do is all about Jesus. Why every message that we speak ends with Christ as the hero. Why every conversation we have with each other is seeking to have Christ at the center of that. And what what it means to, to have Jesus at the center of everything. Uh, I had one dude say to me... Uh, maybe a year ago or so, a friend of mine, he, he said, you know, I like your church. He said, but I just don't like why everything, or I don't like the fact that everything has to be about Jesus. And he didn't get that. Why does it all have to be about Jesus? And, you know, I think it's a great question for an agnostic or borderline uh, atheist, as, as he would probably cons- consider himself to, to ask. Great question to ask. Um, at the same time, though, I hear Christians asking that question at times. Like, I, I had a conversation with a pastor um, at a church like a stone's throw from here you could literally pick up a stone and if you threw it hard enough think you could hit it not that you would want to throw stones <laughs> at the church um, but uh, I was talking to talking to this pastor and, and uh, they basically said that they have a great congregation they just don't really like Jesus very much and I'm like what? are you Christian you're Christian you know they don't like and as one congregant told this pastor they uh, like Christianity, they just don't like Jesus. I'm like, what are you teaching them? <laughs> you know, like, why does everything have to be about Jesus, you know? We've, and, when, when, we, when we think about our culture, the, the reality is this, we've diminished who Jesus is to such a degree that it's hard to answer that question, why everything has to be about Jesus. Like, okay, so it's something about getting us to heaven, all right, but what after that, like, what is the big deal? So he was a good teacher, so he's the perfect human, so we're supposed to follow him. Is that it? Like, what, what is it about Jesus that is so enthralling? And the reality is, we can't trust Jesus. We're not sure if we can trust Jesus. Maybe we could put it that way. Um, we're not sure if we can trust what we read about Jesus. So, so we could say then, uh, well, we believe everything's about Jesus because that's what the Bible tells us, right? Uh, it's what we get from the Gospels. But can we trust the Gospels would be the next question. And there is a, a uh, stream today of theologians and thinkers and people who who uh, um, will, uh, will teach or, or try to, in their books, John Dominic Crossan's one of them, some others, that uh, th- their central mes- message is that the gospel, as we have it, is sort of folklore um, or its traditions. And this has been uh, a couple decades worth of, of writing. Uh, and, th- and it brings up all these, these new questions. Well, can we actually even trust the gospels? Can we trust what the scriptures what the scriptures say. Um, for, for some then, Jesus simply becomes this 
figure of their childhood religion, this sort of like the tooth fairy maybe, or Santa Claus, something that they believed as a child and then they've since grown out of it. For others, Jesus is the lead uh, character in Kanye West's um, Jesus Walks, right? Um, for others, he's simply a way to heaven. He's sort of the cross that's laid across the, uh, the, the flames and he gets you across, right? And, and that's about it. He just gets you to, gets you to a uh, mansion and a piece of pie in the sky. And uh, for others, he is a scrawny hippie and the cross is nothing more than an eternal peace sign saying, it's all good. We're cool. It's like, really? what is Jesus? And who is Jesus to you? And is Jesus everything to you? Or is he just one of the uh, above descriptions? Um, can we trust Jesus? Can we trust what we read about Jesus? There is uh, overwhelming evidence. There's a, a guy named um, Richard Balcom who wrote a book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. Uh, if, if, if the question of the uh, authenticity and the... the um, uh, the trustworthiness of the Gospels is on your mind. Pick that book up. Um, there's also a video that's on our website, uh, 10 minutes of Bauckham talking about the, uh, rea or the um, trustworthiness of the Gospels. I encourage you to get on there, click the resources button, and read it. Um, there is overwhelming evidence, uh, especially within recent years, that shows that the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have been written not centuries later by somebody just making up stories or creating their own traditions, but literally it's been written by eyewitnesses. And, it's, and the, the genre uh, in which the Gospels were written is uh, a genre that's meant to be read literally and historically, not as folklore, not as made up, made up traditions. Um, Papias was a, was a uh, contemporary of the, the Gospels when they, were, when they were written or shortly thereafter. And uh, some of the, the writings that Papias um, passed down, talk, it gives us a glimpse to the, the way people thought during the time that the Gospels were written. And uh, for instance, if, if, if a teacher was coming to town to talk about Christianity, the first question that would be asked is, do you have anything from the Apostles? Is there anything, that, a, a direct word from the apostles, meaning the 12 guys or the 11 guys that were with Jesus the entire time from his baptism on? Do you have anything from these? These, these guys were seen, seen as the authorities. And then Papias also talks about, directly about Mark, which we're getting to. This is, this is all a little behind the scenes sort of, sort of stuff, all right? If you're already zoning me out, like, I don't know about the series, <laughs> you got to stick with us here, all right? We're going to, we'll get, we'll get good in a little bit, maybe. Um, he talks directly about Mark and, and talks about how uh, Mark is the, um, the actual account of Peter. And so Peter literally dictated everything that he saw. And Papias says that Mark wrote down every word that Peter wrote, or Peter, Peter said, without adding anything, without taking anything away. Uh, in order for, their, for a genre in the ancient world to be considered good history. It had to have two things. One, it had, had to be written by an eyewitness or had to be the account of an eyewitness, somebody that was there at the event. 
And then secondly, there had to be, it had to be written during a time when there were other eyewitnesses around. So this means that something would be written and it could be passed around and verified. And, and, and the community says, this is, this is right, this is legitimate, this is what happened, this is good history. Overwhelming evidence, <coughs> all right? I'm kind of putting a whole bunch of ideas together in, in one little nutshell. Um, overwhelming eviden evidence that the Gospels that we have and Mark that we're getting into would be considered good history in the first century. This was written as good history and something that's reliable, something that's trustworthiness. And then as we see how it fits with the broader scope of the scriptures and how we can see that God's spirit was the inspiration behind every word that was written, then, we, then we're really getting somewhere. All right, so we're approaching this then, believing that this is trustworthy, that this is reliable, and that historically speaking, this is good, good history. This is, this is some good stuff right here. All right, so... With that, we're going to then ask this question, why is it all about Jesus? Why does everything have to be about Jesus? And that's sort of the question that we're going to be answering over the next uh, 10 years or so as we do the series. Or four months. Something like that. Um, with that said, can we, uh, can we get a hey, hallelujah? Hey, hallelujah. <laughs> I don't know about the hey, but I just threw it in there. And let's pray, and then we're going to dive into Mark, all right? God, uh, we do thank you for the fact that we have something that's reliable. Uh, we thank you for modern scholarship and, and guys that have, have been able to study this kind of stuff and be able to uh, tell us uh, that this is reliable and that this is trustworthy. But God, even beyond the intellectual side, the side of reason, we know that it's reliable because we've experienced the fruit that it's produced in our lives. And uh, so we enter into this time this morning recognizing that this is your word directly for us. I pray that my words don't confuse anything. And if there's anything that I say that I shouldn't have said, that you just erase that from our minds. And anything that I say that is of you, I ask that you just allow it to stick. And that your spirit moves in our hearts. Open us up. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ as or the, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, that verse is extremely loaded. And essentially, this, 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 is, this could be Mark's title, actually. Um, the beginning of the gospel of, Christ, of Christ, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We're going to spend the rest, the remainder of our series, essentially unpacking that one verse. Um, and even today, we're going to spend the next 12 verses, or 13 verses, and however long I speak, um, what's my time limit today? We've got an hour and a half to go? And I'm going to unpack that one verse over the next, uh, using the next 13 verses or so. Three huge terms that we have to get that are, that are common terms that we use in our Christian circles or religious circles or terms that we might, we might call religious sounding words. But they're huge, loaded terms that I want, us to, I want us to nail down. The first one is in the beginning of, or the beginning of the gospel. All right? Everybody say gospel. gospel. When you hear the word gospel, what comes to mind? First, first thing that comes to mind. Good news. Good news. Meta-narrative. Meta Jesus. Jesus. All right. What else? Testify. Gospel. Testify. 
the apostles, all right. Anything else? Gospel. Uh, some of us might, might automatically think music. Gospel music, right? A genre. Some of us might think the books of the Bible, the four gospels. Um, some of us might think uh, gospel Jesus heaven, right? Go, getting us good news, we don't have to go to hell. We, we get to go to heaven. Um, if you ask 10 people uh, what gospel means or what the gospel is or how they would define the gospel, uh, maybe you should try this. Ask 10 people and see what happens. You probably will find 10 different responses. Um, Everything from feelings, the way it makes us feel, joy, happiness, peace, to um, things that we're supposed to do or to things that we're supposed to believe. What is the gospel? J.I. Packer in his introduction to the death of death and the death of Christ, which is the most amazing name for any book. I wish I would have thought of it. But John did in the, about 400 years ago. In, in J.I. Packer's introduction to the death of death, uh, I, I just want to read this. It's powerful. As he talks about what the gospel um, is and how we've actually lost an understanding and full, complete definition of the gospel today. We've lost, he says, our grip on the biblical gospel. Without realizing it, we have bartered that gospel for a substitute product, which, though it looks similar enough to the, in points of detail, is as a whole a decidedly different thing. Hence our troubles. For the substitute product does not answer the end for which the authentic gospel has in past days proved itself so mighty. It fails to produce deep reverence, deep repentance, deep humility, a spirit of worship, and a concern for the church. Why? The reason lies in its own character and content. It fails to make men God-centered in their thoughts and God-fearing in their hearts because this is not primarily what it's trying to do. One way of stating the difference between it and the old gospel is to say that it, that it is too exclusively concerned to be helpful to man, to bring peace, comfort, happiness, satisfaction, and too little concerned to glorify God. The old gospel was helpful, quote-unquote, too. More so indeed than, than, than is the new. But its first concern was always to give God, glory to God. So again, ask 10 people what the gospel is. And you'll find 10 different variations of it. And, and the, most definitions will be uh, certainly a piece or a part of the gospel, Something that the God, that's very true, that's part of the gospel. But as one theologian said, um, a, a part of a whole uh, claimed to be the whole is in fact a lie. It's in fact not true at all. And so if we, if we proclaim that one aspect or one little element of the gospel is the entire gospel then we're actually perverting the entire thing. Does that make sense? So what is the gospel? Um, what, is, what is this good news of Jesus? Mark believes that the gospel is not just a set of beliefs. It's not just a, a list of practices or teachings that we should do and follow things that Jesus told us to do. Uh, the way Mark starts this off 
I believe, um, uh, would, would call us to, to, to at least grapple with this fact that the gospel is wrapped up in a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. But then even the, that, that brings up this next question, so who was Jesus, right? Because if we say the gospel is Jesus, which sounds nice and is probably true, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Are we talking about the South Park Jesus? Are we talking about the uh, Kanye West Jesus? Are we talking about the liberal Jesus? Are we talking about the conservative fundamentalist Jesus? The Republican Jesus or the Democratic Jesus? Which Jesus are we talking about? Like, who is Jesus? And what about Jesus, right? The next, the next big term, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. Somebody say that word. Christ. Everybody say Christ. 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 All right, Christ is not, as we've talked about extensively in the past, it's not Jesus' last name. We can't call him Mr. Christ. All right. Christ, it's, it's, a, it, it's, it's not some fancy, schmancy term that some religious person just kind of throws out there. Oh, Christ. Oh, you know, it's so holy. I just feel, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like when you hear people say Christ, you, you can like, you're religious, aren't you? Christ is this loaded, deep, theological uh, um, term rooted in Jewish history referring to this anointed coming king. Uh, another word would be Messiah, the chosen one. And so then to, call, to put Christ onto Jesus, do you know the proclamation that that's, that that's making? Jesus Christ, or Jesus the Christ, saying that Jesus is an anointed royal figure. Jesus is a king. However, Jesus Christ doesn't just simply tell us that Jesus is any old king, but rather he is the king. He is the one and only chosen anointed figure of, of history that is going to do something phenomenal for this world. The gospel, the beginning of the gospel, according to Jesus Christ the Son of God. All right, here we go. One more, one more term. The Son of God. Everybody say it. Son of God. Son of God. Now, if you were a first century um, religious Jew at this, at, at this point, and you, by the way, you don't want Jesus to be God, at this point, you would tear your clothes, put ashes on your head, and cry heresy. To take this term and give it to Jesus... What this is doing is it is a proclamation full out of the deity of Christ. The fact that Jesus, deity is a word that, that means God. Jesus is God. Everybody say that. Jesus is God. That's what this is saying. Jesus is in fact God. And if you were someone who was offended at this proclamation that Jesus is not just a great human being or a great teacher, but Jesus is in fact God in the flesh, you would be highly offended at this, at this term right here. The Son of God. He is, he is God. He is in, in the very essence uh, equal to the Father. He is of the same nature as the creator God. He has the same perfections as Yahweh, as the creator God, as the Father. He is enjoying the same glory as God, the Son of God. And then 
Mark really lays it down in this quote he takes from Isaiah chapter 40 and he places it right into here. And I want you to read this quote with me because it's, there's something in here that can easily be sort of passed over uh, if, if we let it. Behold, he says, I send my messenger before your face. He's quoting Isaiah, who will, who will prepare, prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. Prepare the way for the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 40, that word Lord right there, prepare the way for the Lord, is the word Y-H-W-H. Now, if, you, if, if there's any biblical theologians in the house, Y-H-W-H stands for, how do we pronounce it usually? Yahweh. And Yahweh is the personal name of the creator God as revealed to the people of Israel. And so Isaiah then, as he's foreseeing something grand happening, foreseeing something huge happening, he's saying there is going to be this voice crying out from the wilderness, prepare the way for Yahweh. And here, here, comes, here comes Jesus, the very essence of God. God in the flesh. Yahweh in the flesh. That's insane, isn't it? Hundred, hundreds of years prior, Isaiah prophesied this, um, that there would be this, this one coming. And then we begin to see Mark uh, unfold this prophecy in, in verse 4. Look at verse 4 with me. John appeared. This is John the Baptist, uh, the, the man who we usually often refer to as John the Baptist. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 7, skip down with me. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so here is this huge figure, John the Baptist, all right? Try to picture this. Blazing this way for Yahweh, blazing this way for this coming one, the Christ, the chosen one, God in the flesh. He's, he's preparing the way, gathering everybody's attention. He's coming. Prepare the way. Repent. Let's go back to the way that... That, that God wants us to live. Let's, let's go back to the scriptures. Let's go back to the beginning. Let's prepare the way. Wearing camel hair, he's, he's described as, uh, which, which sounds strange, but essentially what that, what that would mean is that he's, he's, uh, um, has, he's part of this extremely strict sect of Judaism that is uh, living in the desert, in the wilderness, separating themselves from what they see as this sinful, wayward uh, uh, people focusing their entire attention on this Yahweh, on this creator God. And, and uh, this, this camel hair is, is significant uh, in that culture. He's eating locusts, which again seems strange, but it's, it, it, it would go along with these strict dietary laws. My point is this. John is a guy who is in love with the creator God. Everything about him, from what he's eating to what he's wearing, everything about him is focused on, on this worship and, and this love of, of Yahweh, of this creator, God. And now John is, is probably with this booming voice, if you can hear him from the wilderness, all right, this booming voice prepared the way, calling, calling the, the, the people back to a place of repentance, to change directions, to start over. 
And as he has this massive presence and probably hundreds of people that are, that are following him, that are being baptized into his teaching of this coming Messiah, the way he talks about this chosen one, he says, this, this one is coming, or the one that is coming, he is greater than I am. He's more powerful than I am. Which, by the way, would have been a shock, I would imagine, to some of the followers. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. You are extremely powerful, my friend. You are great. You are a phenomenal preacher. You are calling, you, look at all these people who are turning their lives around because of your preaching. You're saying that somebody, somebody is coming who's greater than you? Someone is, is coming that's more powerful than you? And the way he describes it, he says, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his shoe. The most trivial act of service, the simplest act of service, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his shoe. That's how powerful he is. We're not even, not even worthy of that. And like this, this concept for us today should, should humble us and should blow us away. When we think of how powerful this coming figure is, and this recognition that John has that he's not worthy for the simplest act of service, and then the way that we kind of treat the, the Jesus in our, you know, in, in most of our conversations or in most churches, sometimes it seems like Jesus is more of a joke than he is someone that we take seriously. You know, we watch Saturday Night Live have somebody dress up with a beard and a, and a robe and they talk to Tebow, right? And we laugh at that. Not even worthy for the simplest act of service, of untying Tying his shoe. Now, how can this be? If, if John is someone who is po already powerful, and he's already gathering up a crowd, like, isn't that the point? Just to get a lot of people to go back to the scriptures and follow the law? Isn't that the point of religion, right? So if, he's, if, he's, if John's doing these, you know, he's, he's preaching, whatever, and people are like, man, I, I get it, I'm... I'm, I'm I'm not following God like I should be. And they're turning back to the scriptures and they're falling in love with the scriptures again. They're reading the scriptures. What is it that Jesus is going to do that John can't do? Um, he's already a powerful figure. What is it that Jesus is going to do that John is not able to do himself? To the degree that John is like, I'm not even, not only can I not do what Jesus is about to do, I can't even get close to that. I can't even serve him. That's the distance between him and I. So what is it about Jesus? What is the good news about Jesus? And then I want, you, I want, I want, to, go, I want to keep going with this. I want you to see his baptism, and that's going to help us answer this question. All right? In verse 9, Mark chapter 1, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. Now, the Greek experts would say that is a violent word, torn right there. This isn't like the heavens just, the clouds parted, and this little dove came floating out of the sky. This is like the, the description of what's happening here. The heavens are ripped 
apart. The heavens, what they saw, it was as if the sky was just torn open. And then it says um, the, the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. Now, where is the first place in the Bible we see the spirit mentioned? Anybody know? Genesis 1.1. The spirit of God was hovering over the earth. All right? And here now we see the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God. As the skies are ripped open, the Spirit descends on him like a dove. And again, the Greek experts would say that that word descending onto him like a dove would be better translated into him like a dove. Like it's another sort of like powerful sort of violent word. The Spirit comes out of heaven and bam, comes into him like a dove. And I can't even get that visual, all right? And a voice. Now, where, where did we first hear a voice in the scriptures? Genesis 1, right? And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, that would make it into good history, right? As people witness this, oh my goodness. Like that's, what a powerful way to begin his ministry, right? Heaven's ripped open. The Spirit comes down and then there's this voice reminiscent of Genesis chapter 1. Speaks again, this is my son. And by the way, as this voice, God the Father speaks this. He's not just making Jesus his son at that moment. It's not as if Jesus was just a a nobody before that, maybe a pretty good guy, good carpenter, whatever he was up to. And then all of a sudden, God says, hey, man, like this guy's proven himself. He's my son, you know. This voice come, comes down. This is, this, is a, uh, this is a declaration of not, um, not just simply what he's going to be from now on, a declaration of what he's always been. And I want you to wrap your minds around this. As we talk about Jesus, Jesus has always existed. <coughs> Where do, we, where do we first see Jesus? Genesis 1. The Word. And the Word eventually did what? The Word became flesh. At the very beginning of the scriptures in our story of creation, we see this powerful action of the Father and the Son and the Spirit working together in creation. And what we're seeing here in Mark chapter 1 is the same Father, Son, and Spirit working together in redemption. And that's important to know. And by the way, this is not tritheism. Everybody say tritheism. tritheism. That means three gods doing three different things. And they could even be opposed to each other at times. This is not tritheism. This is not um, modalism. Everybody say modalism. I hope you're taking notes. That's one God with one person, and he just sort of does three different things at, at different times. But this is one God with three persons. Blows our minds, I understand. But God is as much one as he is three. He's as much three as he is one. The Father is as much God as the Son. The Son is as much God as the Spirit. Spirit's as much God as the Father, and et cetera, et cetera, and we can keep going back around. 
and they in love were acting together in creation. And here, it's not like this was just Jesus' idea to come down and, hey, hey dad, can I, can I go restore humanity to you? You know, it's like, this wasn't just Jesus' idea. It wasn't just the Father's idea. It wasn't just the Spirit's idea because the Spirit wanted to regenerate you. This was the work of the Godhead in love for humanity, working together. The Father sends the Son, and now we see the Spirit indwells and, and, and guides the Son, and the Son goes about doing the work. And what's the work that the Son is doing? What, what happens right after his baptism? Before he actually before he starts preaching, verse twelve into the desert. Yeah, immediately it says the Spirit immediately. So so Jesus doesn't hang around for pictures. All right, they don't go out to lunch after the baptism. <laughs> this is like boom, skies ripped open, Spirit comes down. The, the voice of God says, this is my son. He always has been. He's doing something phenomenal in your midst. Everyone's like, ah, you know, I don't know what the response was. It's probably that, I would imagine. And immediately he gets to work. There is no time to delay. It's, it's on. It's on. And what is his first work? Who is the first person he has a meeting with? Bam. Satan. Let's get to work. Let's get to business. Immediately, he goes out into the desert and he has a con confrontation with the enemy, with Satan. What was it that Jesus could do that John couldn't do? There's this parable that Jesus tells, um, which is probably one of the most powerful, um, most powerful parables that Jesus tells. Uh, it's in John, uh, Mark chapter 3. We begin to understand why the Father is pleased with the Son. What has the Son been sent to do? What was it that, that John the Baptist foresaw that caused him to say, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his shoes? Because if he was just a great teacher, we would be worthy to serve him, right? If he was just a, a, the, the prototype human or the, the, the perfect human, we would be worthy to serve him. What was it that John foresaw in which he said, I'm not even worthy? What was it that Isaiah was, was referring to when he was calling us to look forward to this coming one? This crazy, this, this, this crazy parable. Um, one verse, it's about 27 words in the English translation. And to, to set it up, um, in Isaiah chapter 49, God uh, promises that he will, or that, that, that the captives who have been taken by this evil uh, warlord, the captives will be set free. The evil warlord, the cruel warlord, will not uh, keep the captives that he has. Um, 
the captives will be set free. And the, and the, the, the word plunder is even used. His goods will be plundered. All right? I, want, I want you to see this parable that Jesus tells referring to himself in Mark chapter 3, verse 27. Jesus is specifically around this. He's referring to this, this eternal, or this, this not eternal, this, this cruel warlord. Uh, talking about how Satan's kingdom will not last forever. Satan's kingdom will fall over on itself. And in 327, he gives this little parable. But no one, he says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Let me read that again. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his goods. This is Jesus on the gospel, all right? Nobody can enter into a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he can plunder his goods. Can somebody say amen at that? Like, woo! What was it that Jesus could do that John the Baptist could never do? What was it that Isaiah was so excited about and got giddy about as, as God gave him these visions and understanding of what's about to happen? What was it that, that, uh, that, that the people witnessed at his baptism in which God said, this is my son in whom I well, I'm well pleased? What was the work that the Spirit was driving him to do? Driving him into the wilderness to have his first meeting on the job, Right? What was it? To bind it. To bind it. To bust down the door, grab a hold of the strong man, sit him in a chair and chain him up. And the picture we have is there we are as the captives, right? We are the strong man's captives. And here's the thing, we're brainwashed and we, and we actually enjoy the house that we're now living in. And the door could be very well wide open. And we don't walk out because we're actually pretty happy where we're at. The picture that we're getting of the gospel is that Jesus busts in and he binds up the strong man and he grabs the goods that are his and he walks out. That is the gospel. That is what Jesus has come to do. This is why we're not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandal. And then here's the crazy part, all right? On, on the cross, at the, end of, at the end of Mark, we, we see Jesus hanging on the cross. And it's the first time in which a human actually utters the words, this is the Son of God. Hanging, the suffering servant hanging on the cross. This indeed, this indeed is the Son of God. And when we begin to understand this, and we begin to understand that Jesus came and he rescued us with his own blood, with his own death, at that moment, we completely understand what John's getting at. We're not even worthy to stoop down and untie his shoe. I'm not worthy to do anything. I've been hanging out in the strong man's house and I haven't even thought about it. I'm not even worthy. 
And then we recognize that he has scooped in and he's grabbed us, he's carried us out. And he has called us into his service. We are now called to be on mission with him. To go into the wilderness with him. We are called into his service. That's some crazy stuff, isn't it? How great a salvation is that? Next week, we're going to talk about this mission that we are with, uh, or that we are on with Jesus. So come back next week. Praise Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. God, we do recognize that while we were in our sins and we had no desire to walk out the door of the strong man's house that Jesus busted in, knocked down the door, tied up the strong man, and he has rescued us. He has saved us, brought us into freedom, and we are now slaves to you, and that is exactly where we want to be. God, I pray that as we leave here, as we go uh, about our, our business throughout this week, that we will continue to keep this, this, this huge uh, reality in, in, at the center of our minds that, that Jesus is everything, that it's all about Jesus. Let nothing we do, nothing we say, be something that takes Jesus out of the center of our lives. God, if there is anyone here today who um, you have uh, worked in, you've opened their eyes uh, to the gospel, to this beautiful truth, and that even this morning you are rescuing them from the powers of the evil one, Satan, darkness, sin, destruction, death. God, I ask that they will accept it, they will, that they will move into your grace, that they will place their trust in Jesus because he is trustworthy. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.